Talk Recorded live. Hello. This is William Fink, and this is Chris Getting It Saturdays. Thank you for listening tonight, and praise Yahweh. Tonight is Saturday, December 10th, 2011. Year's just about shot. Well, we got one year and 11 days to the end of the world, according to certain clowns. That's okay. I don't think it's going to happen. I think we'll still be here two years from now, if TalkShoe is still here. I would expect TalkShoe to go before the world does, right? No, no doubt. Okay, tonight I'm going to present my paper, um, Trojan, Roman, Judah. You, you know, when I first found um, Christian Identity in, in 1997, a, a young man that I was acquainted with, well, well, he was 10 years younger than me anyway, gave me, he gave me some books, and, and he gave me um, some books to read, and, and Identity was, of course, I had never heard of it. I, I, I had a racial awakening all of my life, and, and I knew that the Catholic Church was wrong, but, but, but I, because I knew the Catholic Church just had to be wrong, and, and any casual observer can see that, that, that's grown up in it. I mean, if they'd only open their damned eyes and, and take a look at what goes on there. That the, um, I was turned off of Christianity altogether, basically. I, I, I never believed in evolution. I, I always believed that there was a God. And, and the creator, and, and that's only common sense, too, when you look at the, the, the creation itself. Ex nihilo nihil fit. Nothing comes from nothing. That's Latin. One of my favorite Latin sayings. The, the, um, the gentleman that introduced me to Christian identity, he had given me some books, the Abrahamic Covenant and, and Verboten, the Covenant People by W.J. Cameron, who, who was the um, editor of the Dearborn Independent for Henry Ford. Um, Compare's Your Heritage, not the big, thick um, collection of sermons, but the small, thin book that, that's just like about 40, 50 short pages. And, and I read those, and, and I was extremely interested, and I was more or less hooked, but I wasn't – I was still critical, Right. I was still critical because I wanted to prove these things to myself, and I decided to spend my time reading the classics. Of course, I had plenty of spare time in those days. So, so um, I, I decided I read Josephus and Tacitus, and, and that wasn't enough, and Herodotus, and uh, I went on to Strabo and Thucydides, and I could give you a, a long list. But, but um, most of the names are probably foreign anyway. Well, well anyway, the, the bottom line is I read all these books, and, and the classics convinced me that Christian identity is true. That we are indeed, that the, the people, for the most part, I mean, the Jepetites were there first, but, but, but even that is a part of our Christian identity faith, right? That, that the Jepetites had preceded us into Europe. The, the, the white nations of Genesis chapter 10, their distribution across the oikumene, or, or the inhabited earth, which, which is what I mean, that the Adamic Greco-Roman world, that the, um, the white world, it is the, the garden of God, as he explains it in, in Ezekiel chapter 31, as it's called there. That is the oikumene, that is the Adamic world, the white world. Well, we can, um, my, my Genesis chapter 10 paper discussed that at great length. I presented that here a few weeks ago. 
but but it was the reading of the classics that sealed that that sealed my my assurance, my personal assurance that Christian identity is true, and, and that. Well, once that assurance was sealed, it's driven everything I've done ever since. There are papers on my website that, that um, of course, the 13 Christogenian historical essays, the, the first 13, the, the, um, the, the classical records identifying the Phoenicians, the, the classical records in the Dorian and Dan and Israelite Greeks, which I hope to present them here shortly um, over the next couple of months. And tonight I'm going to discuss classical records and Trojan Roman Judah. I'm going to read a passage that, that's really not a part of this presentation. I didn't quote it in, in my paper that, that's on the website. I'm going to go through a couple of things here tonight that aren't quoted in that paper on the website, but I'm also going to present the paper itself. This is from um, Diodorus Siculus. It's only a short passage I'm going to read. It's um, book 40, and it's a very fragmented book. We're lucky to have it. It's incomplete. Yeah, you know, about half, I mean, that's a guess, right? Because since we don't actually have it, we really don't know. But but about half of Diodorus Siculus's work it is fragmentary and, and lost to us. And that's a damn shame. But But that was a lot of the ancient classics we only had pieces of what we only have quotes from, what we, we know they existed, but we don't have them anymore. But well, Theodore Siculus wrote 40 books, so far as we know, and he was not a historian, really. He, he was more of a compiler, and that's by his own admission, and he calls his work the Library of History. And, and he quoted from what he thought were all of the best sources available to him in his time. Now, now he was writing up until about 34, 35 B.C., and that could be demonstrated simply from the things that he wrote about. So he died 35 years before Christ, 34 years before Christ in there. And, and um, his library of history is a real treasure because it comes from what he thought were the best historical sources, and he made a linear historical narrative. Theodorus also illustrates a lot of problems in historical chronology because his chronology is a couple of years off of the most popular mainstream historical chronologies compiled today. And, and that illustrates some of the problems in, in um, nailing things like Daniel's 70 weeks right down to the year. Right, because it's it, it covers such a long time so long ago. Well, here's a quote from Diodorus Siculus, Book 40. And, and in this, Diodorus is basically giving, now, now granted this is 1,500 years after the fact, right? But, but it's about as good as we could do, and we're going to see a lot of many older histories which support this. Diodorus is basically giving the Egyptian side of the Exodus story. And, and if you want to really know how old political spin is, well, well, this story is perfect because the Egyptian side, and he's quoting an, a, a writer that lived a couple of hundred years before his own time, and I think this is Hecatahius of Abdera is the writer that he's quoting and, and compiled this from. 
And, and he says, when in ancient times a pestilence arose in Egypt, well, well, they're the plagues of, of, the, of the book of Exodus that we know. A common, the common people ascribe their troubles to the workings of a divine agency. For indeed, with many strangers of all sorts dwelling in their midst, and that's a, a reference to the Hebrews, as we will see, and practicing different rites of religion and sacrifice, their own traditional observances in honor of the gods had fallen into disuse. Hence, the natives of the land surmised that unless they remove the foreigners, that, that's what I mean by political spin, right? It's, it's exactly the opposite of the biblical account. Their troubles would never be resolved. At once, therefore, the aliens were driven from the country, and the most outstanding and active among them banded together, and, as some say, were cast ashore in Greece and certain other regions. Their leaders were notable men, chief among them being Danos and Cadmus, and those two names are going to come up several times tonight. But the greater number were driven into what is now called Judea, which is not far distant from Egypt, and which was at that time utterly uninhabited. Of course, this is political spin. It, it's not really a, a reliable history, but we see the Exodus being told from the Egyptian perspective here several hundred years before Christ. The colony was headed by a man called Moses, outstanding both for his wisdom and for his courage. On taking possession of the land he found besides he founded, besides other cities, one that is now the most renowned of all, called Jerusalem. So, so we see that um, Moses is the leader of the aliens expelled from Egypt in, in, in this, and, and that's pretty funny because that is political spin. And, and the Egyptians, you know, created a version of history that helps them save face because the Exodus account is not very flattering for Egypt, right? That the God of the Hebrews could be so much more powerful then the Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. However, the important thing here is that Cadmus and Danos are connected to the Hebrews in Egypt. Danos, everywhere in Greek, um, in, in Greek poetry and Greek histories, because these are quoted from the very beginning of Greek writing as historical figures. Even though, you know, regardless of what they existed, what is important here is what the Greeks believed about their origins and, and their history, right? Danos was the leader of the Danans who left Egypt and went to Greece. Cadmus, what was a, um, called a Phoenician, but here we see his origin is in, is in Egypt. Why would he be called a Phoenician if his origin is in Egypt? Well, well because he was certainly a, um, a Hebrew. Cadmus is the legendary founder of the city of Thebes, Sebes, in Greece. And, and, and that was a Phoenician city. And, and um, the tragic poets described, the tragic Greek poets describes the um, the people of Thebes as being fair and blonde-headed people. And, and there's no doubt they were white. And, and um, later on, Thebes actually sided. It, it was the only mainland green city, Greek city that actually sided with the Persians in the Greek War and, and didn't fare too well in the long run because of that. 
But but basically, we see Danos and, and Cadmus, two of the leading mythological figures in the founding of Greece. What we see them was their origin. With the Hebrews in Egypt, and that's Theodore Siculus, quoting from Hecatahius of Abdera. And I'll set that aside. I'll quote that again in a greater length when I, when I present my... Uh, my essay on the Dan and, and Dorian Greeks, and, and I'm not sure exactly when. It might be this month. It might be next. It's going to be soon. I have in front of me Apollodorus, the library. Now, Apollodorus is a very late writer. He, he probably wrote, I think he may have written in the second century B.C. Um, there's evidence he did not. There's evidence he wrote in the first century A.D. He, he's... Um, he was tied in earlier times with a um, a known Apollodorus who was an Athenian and a grammarian and of the second century BC. Well, I believe that's who this Apollodorus is. However, there are some references in Apollodorus's work to historical characters who lived in the very early first century AD, and, and for that reason, some scholars want to quote Apollodorus, want to. Um, what well, wants to say that this was a different Apollodorus who lived around the time of Hadrian, the Roman emperor. And, and um, I, I don't look at it that way. I believe that this is Apollodorus, the Athenian of the second century B.C., but that some of those passages were added later. And, and um, that, that's contrary to the beliefs of, of Fraser, J.G. Fraser, the British scholar who quoted this version I have in front of me, but but that's okay. He was a very learned man. I, I just have a different opinion, and and I've read Apollodorus at length also. Well, well, um, I'm going to quote a little bit from the introduction to Fraser, and this is important to understand. It's important to understand the context of our history and the sources that we get it from. And this is from Fraser's introduction to Apollodorus on page 17. Turning now from the author to his book, we may describe the library, which is the name of Apollodorus's major work, as a plain, unvarnished summary of Greek myths and heroic legends, as these were recorded in literature. For the writer makes no claim to draw on oral tradition, nor is there the least evidence or probability that he did so. It may be taken as certain that he derived all of his information from books alone. Yet, you know, Apollodorus is not the, the he's one of the minor sources. Uh, I don't think I quoted him in, in but a couple of papers, and, and generally I haven't relied on him at all. I, I use Apollodorus as a reference because Apollodorus is written late. And because he did make a summary of all Greek mythology. It's kind of like Apollodorus is like Greek mythology for dummies. And if you want to read one ancient classic and understand Greek mythology, I would have to tell you to read Apollodorus, right? He used excellent authorities and followed them faithfully, reporting but seldom or never attempting to explain or reconcile their discrepancies and contradictions, because we do see discrepancies and contradictions in the Greek myths from Greek writers, that they had different opinions, the, the poets. 
Hence, his book possesses documentary value as an accurate record of what the Greeks in general believed about the early origin and early history of the world and of their race. The very defects of the writer are, in a sense, advantages which he possessed for the execution of the work he had taken in hand. He was neither a philosopher nor a rhetorician, and therefore lay under no temptation either to recast his materials under the influence of theory or to embellish them for the sake of literary effect. He was a common man who accepted the traditions of his country in their plain literal sense, apparently without any doubt or misgiving. So, so Apollodorus is also a compiler of, of um, a, a compiler of, of histories and, and mythologies of the Greeks, and an honest one who, who simply um, summarized what he himself had read in many books, and, and that's how the and, and he is a learned man, Fraser, and, and that's how. Fraser characterized him. That was uh, written in um, 1921, right? Before the Jews really destroyed academia. They, they, they were working on it at that time. They weren't quite there yet. So I'm going to quote, uh, I'm going to read a couple of um, a couple of chapters, and, and they're not too long, from, from the library, book three, written by Apollodorus. And I'm going to do this Mostly to, um, I'm not even sure how, how much I'm going to read of it, but I'm going to do this mostly to show the context of the early, you know, of the history and, and the, the um, dispersion of peoples as the earliest Greeks believed that they happened. And, and um, you know, there's a lot of theories, there's a lot of harebrained theories, mostly urged on by the Jews and by various pagans that our race, that the Aryan race, originated in the far north and came south and invaded the Mediterranean world. And, and that just doesn't hold water. If that held any water at all, if the pagans were right for one minute, then the Greeks got it all backwards and they were all retarded. Because all of the Greek accounts give the Greek peoples as coming from the east, from Egypt, from Mesopotamia, their traditions, that their lifestyles all show their origin to be the Levant and, and the, the lands of the Bible. None of their traditions really have them as coming from Northern Europe, from a cold climate, from, from the forests of Germany, from, from beyond the Danube. And in fact, the Greeks, all the earliest Greeks, when they spoke about the land beyond the Danube, Herodotus said it was, it was uninhabited. And he said it was uninhabitable. Strabo said that the lands north of the Danube were uninhabitable because of the cold. Diodorus Siculus would agree. All of the Greek writers would agree. The idea that white that, that Aryans came out of the northern climates and invaded the Mediterranean, it's a ridiculous idea because it flies in the face of all history. Hopefully we'll see some of that with, with Apollodorus tonight. 
and with our Bible shortly. Apollodorus, the library, book three. Having now run over the family of Anarchus and described them from Belus down to the Heracles. And, and I got to speak about a couple of these names, right? And, and that, Apollodorus did that in book two, right? He, he described the family of Anarchus and described them from Belus. Well, 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 who was Belus? Belus is Baal. It, it's that simple. Who were the Heracles? Well, well, the Heracles are the descendants of the mythical Heracles, of course. And, and there's a story in, 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 um, in the epic cycle, and, and it was a story that was repeated all through Greek history, that the descendants of Heracles were rejected by the Danans and, and the Argives. They were rejected from the Peloponnesus. And they left, and they went, and, and they, they brought the Dorians, and the Dorians invaded the Peloponnesus and, and, um, and, and destroyed it and drove the Danans out or enslaved the Danans that they didn't drive out and, and, um, and destroyed my, what, we know, what, what archaeologists know as Mycenaean civilization. And the Dorians then inhabited it. And by all Greek accounts, that happened about two generations after the Trojan War. Now, now I know that a lot of this is going to be... Um, it is going to be difficult to comprehend if we don't have a good timeline. So let me set a timeline. And this is a real rough timeline, right? I could be off 25, 50 years. It doesn't really matter for our purposes here tonight. Most mainstream archaeologists believe that Mycenaean civilization, which is the, the civilization of the Danan Greeks that destroyed Troy in the Trojan War, that that was established between 1600 and 1500 B.C., that's not my opinion. My opinion is that the Danans traveled to Greece from Egypt just before the Exodus, which is between 1500 and 1450 B.C., and that's fine. And that they had moved in, as their own poetry says, they had moved into the Peloponnesus alongside people that were there previously. I would believe from my Bible that the people that were there previously and from archaeology, what were the, um, the Jepesite tribes that, that had occupied Greece before the, the Danans? So we have the Danans in Greece around 1500 B.C., let's say. And we have the Exodus around um, 1450 B.C. And by all accounts, the Trojan War began around 1200 B.C. Now, from 1450 B.C. until about 1050 B.C. or, or 1000 B.C., that's the 400-year period of the judges in Israel, just so that we have a, a, a brief understanding of the chronology. And, and Saul ruled somewhere around 1000 B.C., and we had about 400 and something years of kings in Judah until Jerusalem was destroyed in 585 B.C. And, and um, 300 years of, of kings in Israel in the northern kingdom before the Assyrians began to take them away around 740 B.C. All this time, we don't have any Greek writing. Zero. According to our Greek sources, which are rather late, the Trojan War happened around 1200 B.C. It ended around 1185 B.C., well, which is still in the middle of the Judges period in Israel. It's pretty, um, you know, advanced time in the, period, in, in the history of the children of Israel. 
And the Dorian invasion happened two generations later, or about 1100 B.C., where the Dorians invaded the Peloponnesus in Greece, and, and the Dorians became the famous Spartans and Corinthians of later times. But the Danan Greeks were, were always there in some element. They were called by the Spartans perioikoi, perioikoi or, or the people who lived around Sparta, right? That the um, many of the Danans in the earliest accounts migrated north and went to Macedonia, and and some of and and so did the Trojans after the fall of Troy, go to those areas and found what we know as Illyria. Homer, when he writes his his poetry, he mentions the Dorians, but he they don't have an active role in the Trojan Wars. He only mentions them, and he mentions them as being on Crete. And we're going to see from Apollodorus that Crete has a um, a, a major part in, in all of the settlement of, of Greece and, and the Troad, Troy and, 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 and the um, surrounding areas. So, so that's just a quick timeline. I, I hope it's understandable to some degree. I'll, I'll mention dates as I proceed with this when I can. Having now run over the family of Anacus and describing and describe them from Belus or Bel down to the Heracles. Now, now Heracles was a mythical figure and he supposedly was on the trip with Jason and the Argonauts. And that that adventure when it was written supposedly took place a couple of generations before the Trojan War, maybe about 1250 B.C. And, and the Greeks claim that the original Heracles, the, the hero, was there. I, I um, have some issue with Heracles being an actual person. If the Heracles, if the Her Heracles, if the descendants of Heracles was ejected from the Peloponnese, by the Danans after the Trojan War and came back with the Dorians. Well, well, that word Heracles is a very interesting word because the word for a, a merchant in um, in in Hebrew is rakal. A rakal is a merchant, and the article is ha, and ha rakal would be the merchant, and ha rakalim would be plural, and ha rakalim would be the merchants or the traders. And the way I see it is that they were later personified into this hero Heracles. Now, now this is my opinion, but I think it has merit. If, if the Harakalim were ejected from the Peloponnese, and they went to Dor in Palestine, and they got the Dorians because Homer has the, the Dorians in an intermediary position on Crete, and they got the Dorians to, to do their bidding, their fighting. And the Dorians came and invaded the Peloponnese, 1100 B.C., by sea, which is how the Greek accounts say they got there. Well, well that makes perfect sense. The merchants had a hard time in the Peloponnesus with the Danans, and they went to Palestine, and they got the Dorians <laughs> to come and kick their butts. 
Doesn't that sound like the Jewish bankers of Europe? That, that's my opinion, and, and I think that might be more closer to the story that the myths represent. But we'll proceed with Apollodorus finally. We have next to speak of the house of Agenor. For as I, meaning Apollodorus, have said, Libya had by Poseidon, the, the idol, two sons, Belus and Agenor. Now Belus reigned over the Egyptians and begot the aforesaid sons. But Agenor went to Phoenicia, married Telephassa, and begot a daughter, Europa, and three sons, Cadmus, Phoenix, and Kelix. So we see that the Cadmus and, and the Phoenix that Theodore Siculus said traveled from Egypt into Greece and, and established, you know, Greek cities. Well, well we see that um, they have a, a, an association in Apollodorus with Phoenicia. And we see that Europa is the sister of Phoenix. In some myths, she's the daughter of Phoenix. But some say that Europa was a daughter, not of Agador, but of Phoenix. Zeus, meaning God, that's the Greek high God, right? Zeus loved her, and turning himself into a tame bull, he mounted her on his back and conveyed her through the sea to Crete. Now, in Crete, we see that there was a, um, a strong bull cult. And, and from the bull cult in Crete, where they worshipped the bull, we have the legends of the Minotaur. Well, well if you go to um, Israelite history, when they were leaving Egypt, they made a golden calf. When they forsook the temple religion, after King Solomon died, they returned to the worship of calves, and Jeroboam commanded that golden calves be set up in various cities of the northern tribes of Israel. And from then on, they were calf worshippers. They were bull worshippers. They were not Yahweh worshippers. They turned to paganism. That's right in Kings and Chronicles that that happened as soon as Solomon died. There was a command by the king to create a new priesthood and to create the golden calves so that the children of Israel of the northern tribes would not go to Jerusalem and, and, and um, be subject to the people of Judah and, and the religion of Judah. We see that, that bull worship is very prevalent in, in these talks about ancient Minos and, and ancient Greece. Zeus loved her and turning himself into a tame bull. He mounted her on his back and conveyed her through the sea to Crete. There Zeus bedded with her, and she bore Minos, Sarpedon, and Radamantus. But according to Homer, Sarpedon was a son of Zeus by Laodamia, daughter of Bellerophon. Where we see that name Bell again. On the disappearance of Europa, her father Agenor sent out his sons in search of her, telling them not to return until they had found Europa. With them, her mother Telephassa Sassus, the son of Poseidon, or according to Pharisees of Kelix, 
went forth in search of her. But when, after diligent search, they could not find Europa, they gave up the thought of returning home and took up their abode in diverse places. Phoenix settled in Phoenicia. Kelix settled near Phoenicia. We'll see that that's the um, eponymous ancestor and founder of, of Calicia, which is um, north of, of Syria, right? And, and on the coast of modern-day Turkey. And all the countries subject to himself near the river Pyramus he called Calicia. And Cadmus and Telephassa took up their abode in Thrace. And in like manner, Thassus founded a city named Thassus in an island off of Thrace and dwelt there. Now, now this is Apollodorus who is recording, who, who is recording the earliest beliefs about, of the Greeks about their own origins. Now Asterius, prince of the Cretans, married Europa and brought up her children. But when they were grown up, they quarreled with each other, for they loved a boy called Miletus, son of Apollo. By Aria, the daughter of Cleocus. As the boy was more friendly to Sarpedon, Minos went to war and had the better of it, and the others fled. So, so we see Apollodorus demonstrating that grown men were fighting over a little boy, right? Miletus landed in Caria. Caria is an ancient, the name of the ancient district, which today is the southwesternmost corner of Turkey, just opposite Greece, right? Miletus landed in Caria, and there founded a city which he called Miletus after himself. And Sarpedon allied himself with Kelix, who was at war with the Lycians, and having stipulated for a share of the country, he became the king of Lycia. And Zeus granted to him to live for three generations. But some say that they loved Atimnius, the son of Zeus, and Cassipia, and that it was about him that they quarreled. If you ever want to know what Paul of Tarsus meant by telling Titus not to pay any mind to vain genealogies, this is it. He doesn't mean not to pay any mind to your race and your origins, but not to heed vain genealogies. We see these all throughout the Greek poets where they believed that they descended from one god or another or in some union with a woman, just like Genesis chapter 6. Radamantus legislated for the islanders, but afterwards he fled to Boiodia and married Alcamena. And since his departure from the world, he acts as a judge in Hades, along with Minos. So the Greeks had a very, um, a, a, a view of the underworld, after death, which was very much like the Hebrews, right? Minos, residing in Crete, passed laws and married Pasiphae, daughter of the sun, and Persis. But Asclepiad says that his wife was Crete, daughter of Asterius. He begot two sons, to wit, Catrius, Deucalion, Glaucus. He begot sons, I'm sorry, to which, to wit, Catrius, Deucalion, Glaucus, and Androgeus, and daughters, Achilles, Zenodice. Ariadne and Phaedra. And by a nymph Paria he had Eurymedon, Nathalion, Croesus, and Philolaus, lover of people. 
and by Decaseia he had Eucontius. Asterius, dying childless, Minos wished to reign over Crete, but his claim was opposed. So he alleged that he received the kingdom from the gods. And in proof of it, he said that whatever he prayed for would be done. And in sacrificing to Poseidon, he prayed that a bull might appear from the depths, promising to sacrifice it when it appeared. Poseidon did send him up a fine bull, and Minos obtained the kingdom. And he sent the bull to the herds and sacrificed another. Being the first to obtain the dominion of the sea, he extended his rule over almost all the islands. But angry at him for not sacrificing the bull, Poseidon made the animal savage and contrived that Pasiphae should conceive a, pas a passion for it. In her love for the bull, she found an accomplice in Didalus, an architect who had been banished from Athens for murder. He constructed a wooden cow on wheels, took it, hollowed it out the inside, sewed it up in the hide of the cow which he had skinned, sewed up, sewed it up in the hide of the cow which he had skinned. Okay, it's a wooden cow with the skin of a dead one. And set it in the meadow in which the bull used to graze. Then he introduced Pasiphae into it, and the bull came and coupled with it as if it were a real cow. And she gave birth to Asterius, who was called the Minotaur, the idea that a woman could have a child that's half person and half bull. And he had the face of a bull, but the rest of him was human. And Minos, in compliance with certain oracles, shut him up and guarded him in a labyrinth. Now, now this is a famous story with Minos, right? Now, the labyrinth which Didelus constructed was a chamber that with its tangled windings perplexed the outward way. The story of the Minotaur and Androgeus and Phaedra and Ariadne I will tell hereafter in my account of Theseus. Well, well, we see what we see, and, 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 and let me continue. I'm going to read one more paragraph. But Catrius, son of Minos, had three daughters, Ariope, Arope, I'm sorry, Clymene and Apemosune, and a son, Alcimenes. When Catrius inquired of the oracle how his life should end, the god said that he would die by the hand of one of his children. Now Catrius hid the oracles, but Alcimenes heard of them. And fearing to be his father's murderer, he set out from Crete with his sister Ap Emosune and put in at a place in Rhodes. And having taken possession of it, he called it Cretinia. And having ascended the mountain called Ad Atabirium, I'm sorry, Atabirium, he beheld the islands round about. Now, Frazier has a note here, and he says that as to Atabirian Zeus and his sanctuary on Mount Atabirium, or Atabiris, the highest mountain in Rhodes, and he refers us to Pindar, and he says that Theodorus Siculus tells us that the sanctuary, crowning a lofty peak, was highly venerated down to his own time. And he goes on to explain that Atabirian Zeus would seem to have been worshipped in the form of a bull. And he shows that that word Atabirian is related to the, what, what he calls the Semitic word Tabor. And he relates it to the Hebrews. He said the worship of Atabirian Zeus may well have been of Phoenician origin, for we have seen that there was a Phoenician colony in Rhodes, and the name Atabirius is believed to be Semitic, equivalent to the Hebrew word Tabor. And we see the golden calves of Exodus, 
we see the golden calves of 1 Kings chapter 12, 2 Kings chapter 10, 2 Kings chapter 17, and they're also mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapters 11 and 15 and, and 13. And, and we see that this was the Israelite religion at this time. If we've observed, you know, Apollodorus goes on to describe a, a whole lot of other things, and I'm going to quote most of them from references in my paper from Strabo, from Theodorus Siculus, and they had probably much the same sources that Apollodorus had. But what we see in Apollodorus is we see how um, married the Greeks were to their beliefs of, of their kindredness to these people called the Phoenicians, that their, their relations to Minos, that their relations to, to um, the people that came from Egypt, the Danis, Danos, the Danans, and, and Cadmus, the Phoenician. And, and we see that the Greeks themselves believe that their origins were in the Levant and in Egypt. And that was my point in quoting Apollodorus at length, what was to show how well ingrained that was into the Greek mind. You won't find one Greek writing which says that they came from Northern Europe, from beyond the Danube, from Western Europe, or from any other place where all of these Jew-loving clowns that call themselves historians would imagine that they came from. And the problem is the Jewish problem. That's the problem. The Jews, by asserting a false identity for themselves as the Israelites and Hebrews of Scripture, have polluted all academia. And anybody who makes the suggestion that the Greeks came from the Israelites or from the Hebrews of Egypt is basically... Um, it is basically labeled a nut job and, and, and branded in academia. Even when they're Jews, and there have been Jewish scholars that, that have made that admission, because it's, it's impossible to deny. Of course, those same Jewish scholars will um, twist the truth about other things and still try to maintain the false Jewish identity of themselves, but... but um, the Greeks, the, the Greek writings clearly show that they had a, um, an origin in the East and, and with the Hebrews of Egypt. In our Bible, at 1 Kings 4.31, the wisdom of Solomon was said to exceed that of several other men. Where it says, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and, and that is, can be shown to have been in Hebrew, Ethan the Zerahite, not Ezrahite. And we know that Hebrew words are written backwards, and that there are other instances of the King James translators translating them forwards when it should have been transliterating them backwards. And He-Man, and Kalkal, and Darda, the sons of Nahal, this is 1 Kings 4.31, and his fame, meaning Solomon's fame, was in all the nations round about. Yet the only other place in the Bible that these apparently great men 
Ethan, the Zarahite, and Haman, and Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. The only other place in the Bible they are mentioned, even though they're great enough to be compared with Solomon's wisdom, is in 1 Chronicles 2.6. And in 1 Chronicles 2.6, we learn that these are the sons of Zarah, the son of Judah. While there are some differences in the names as they appear in Chronicles and in the Septuagint, the differences aren't really major. And Josephus, who, whose um, Hebrew texts were, were admittedly both much closer to the Septuagint and much more reliable than, than the Masoretic text is, Josephus in his Antiquities of the Judeans in, in Book 8, 843, speaking of Solomon, says, He's basically re- repeating what he what we've just read in 1 Kings 4.31. He says that he, meaning Solomon, also excelled and distinguished himself in wisdom above those who were most eminent among the Hebrews at that time for shrewdness. Those, I mean, were Ethan and Haman and Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal, who we learn is a son of Zara, the son of Judah. Examining Genesis 46.12, we learn that when Jacob went to Egypt, Zara went along also, but no sons of Zara accompanied him. I mean, the text takes the time to tell you how many people went to Egypt with Jacob, and none of the sons of Zara are with him. While he may have had a wife, Zara, or wives with him, as Genesis 46.26 um, insinuates, and Pharez had his own two sons with him, Zara went to Egypt without children. Much later during the Exodus, we see that there were descendants of Zara with the Israelites, and, and they're mentioned in Numbers chapter 26, verse 20. Yet, while the records of the census in the desert mentioned the tribes of the sons of Pharez, naming them by name, Zara's sons, who must have been notable men, as we see in, in, in Genesis chapter 46 and in, in Chronicles, are not mentioned individually in any of those censuses. Is it merely a coincidence that these names of Zara's sons, while they appear nowhere in the Bible except these two places, turn up in Greek in Greek classical records. Can that be a coincidence? These men with whom Solomon was compared must have been great men, and so why shouldn't we, not finding them in the Hebrew records, Look to the records of, as the text says, those nations round about for the deeds of these men. And, of course, we, we, we should, being told so many times elsewhere that Abraham's offspring would indeed become many nations. Now, if we don't have an affirmation of that promise for the foundation of our Christian faith, that then our history is, is um, and, and the promises are worth nothing. But we do have an affirmation of the promise. We do have that 
in the foundation of our Christian faith if we look for it. And we do find it in history. In Greek literature, Dardanus, and, and the Greeks, uh, let me say something about Greek. Every Greek word ends in the letter S, or the letter R, or the letter N, unless it's a vowel, unless it ends in a vowel. There's only a couple of exceptions to that. The exceptions are the preposition ek, meaning from, and the, the numeral hex, meaning six. They are the only exceptions that I know. Every other, so, so the Greeks put endings on words. And, and we see that Yesu or Yahshua is actually Yesus in Greek. The Greeks put that S on the end because every Greek word that doesn't naturally end in a vowel, they, they added an, they, they made sure it added an S, an N, or an R. That, that makes it easier to parse Greek too from, from the inscriptions. Well, well um, Darda would become Dardanus in, in Greek very naturally. In Greek literature, Dardanus is the founder of the settlement in northwest Anatolia, which became known as Troy. Its principal city was known by two names, either Ilius or Ilium, after Ilos, one of Dardan's, Darda's descendants, or Troy, after Tros. Both of these are descendants of Dardanus. And, and this is talked about in Strabo and his geography in, in Book 13. Homer. Homer, the great Greek poet, constantly gives a genealogy. From Dardanus down through Ilos and Tros and several other generations, as far as Priam, king of Troy, when the city was destroyed by the Greeks. Homer was very confident that he could present the, the, the genealogy of Priam from Dardanus, the literary, the, the, um, the mythological founder of, of, of the colony where the city was founded, all the way down to Priam. And, and I believe it's five or six generations. I don't have it in my paper or in my head, but it's only five or six generations. That's it. It's not, much, it's not more than that. The larger district around Troy became known as the Troad, and the Greeks claimed that the walls of the city were built by the sea god Poseidon, as we see in Diodorus Siculus, Library of History, Book 4. Throughout Homer and throughout later Greek literature, the Trojans are called Dardans, or sometimes Dardanians, after Darda, after Dardanus. But sometimes Homer mentions Trojans and Dardans together, and that only distinguishes the Dardans of Troy from those who dwelt in other cities around Troy. We are told by Strabo, Book 10 of his geography, where he's citing Homer, that the Lycians, the people of Lycia, are also Dardans. Well, we just saw that relationship also spelled out in the pages of Apollodorus, where some of the... Um, the other descendants of, of the brethren of Helix and, and Cadmus the Phoenician and, and Phoenix had, had also in, taken Lycia as their own land, right? 
Blickia would be um, inland in Anatolia. It would be above Pamphylia. So, so Pamphylia is the district on the southern coast of modern Turkey, what would have been ancient Pamphylia. And Caria would be next to it on the corner, and Lycia would be right above it. We are told that the Lycians are Dardans, Strabo Geography Book 10, and that Dardans are also found among the Illyrians, and that's in Strabo's Geography in Book 7. From Homer's Iliad, Book 2, it is clear that the Dardans dwelt in other towns throughout the region that became known as the Troad. Both Herodotus, in his seventh book, and Strabo, who quotes him, tell us that Pamphylia, the district on the southern coast of Anatolia, was a colony founded by Calchas, who was a Trojan. Calchas was also considered to be a wise man and a prophet by the Greeks. And that's in Strabo in book 14 of this geography. If Dardanus is not Darda, and if Calchas is not Calcol, and, and remember I said that the Greek language, every word that didn't end in a vowel ended in an S, an N, or an R. And, and here we have um, Calcol becoming Calchas. If Dardanus is not Darda and Calchas is not Calcol, then why does the Bible mention these men by these names as if they were men of renown without telling us who they were? And where, except that they were children of Zara, sons of Zara, the son of Judah. And where did Dardanus, the Trojan, come from when he founded the colony which became Troy? The Greek myths only tell us that they came from Crete, but they were originally from Egypt and Phoenicia. That's the Greek myths. That's what we just read in Apollodorus. Now, some may object and claim that the Trojans were nothing but Phrygians and, and people, and, and um, that, that's actually been claimed by mainstream historians. And the Greek tragic poets such as Euripides and Aeschylus called them Phrygians, and, and they were being demeaning. Homer never called them Phrygians, and neither did other earlier writers. Homer did name Phrygians and Thracians, these people were known to the Greeks, among those who aided in Troy's defense in Book 2 of the Iliad. And Strabo notes the error by the tragic poets. Strabo says that Euripides and Aeschylus are in error for calling the Trojans Phrygians in the 12th book of his geography. The geographer tells us of the territories held by the Phrygians before the Trojan War and that they were not in the Troad and that the Phrygians were a division of the Thracians, which is corroborated elsewhere. And Strabo mentions that on several occasions in five of his books. While the Adamic Israelite Trojans, as we have, well, well as I'm asserting here, may have had intercourse with and even intermarried with the Adamic Jephthite Thracians. The word in Genesis 10, verse 2, 
which is Tyrus in the King James Version. If you check Strong's Concordance, Strong spells, he trans he transliterates that word in the English letters as T-H-I-Y-R-A-C, and the C is soft, and that would be Thyras or Thyras, and that would be Thrace. The Tyrus of Genesis 10-2 represents the people of Thrace. While the Adamic Israelite Trojans may have had intercourse with and even intermarried with the Adamic Japhethite Thracians, that would simply be a fulfill, another fulfillment of the prophecy found at Genesis 9.27, that Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem, and the Trojans surely were not Phrygians. They were a distinct people who came to the Troad by sea. Here it is necessary to discuss some of the other nations of the Eastern Mediterranean, starting with the Cretan or Minoan civilization, which we just saw. There is a clear connection between Crete and the Troad when place names are compared. Strabo makes this comparison in, his, in the tenth book of his geography, where he cites in common not only the name of the famous Mount Ida, a, a, a famous mountain in, in ancient Troy, which was also the name of a mountain in Crete. But he also names places such as Dicte, Pitna, Hippo Corona, and, and Samonium, and, and demonstrates that names, that those names were names of places in ancient Troy and in ancient Crete. The Kabiri, and this is interesting, the Kabiri were gods worshipped among the Pulaski. The Pulaski were the pre-Trojan people of Samothrace, and, and they were also the name which the Greeks gave the people that were in Greece before the Greeks were, before the Danans and the Dorians were. The Kabiri were gods worshipped among the Pulaski in Samos race, which is called Samos by Homer. Samos race is an island off the coast of the Troad. Herodotus describes it. Strabo describes it. George Rawlinson, who was a very learned man, notes in his translation of Herodotus, in Book 3, Chapter 37, that the Kabiri were Pulaskic gods, and E.H. Blakely, the editor of the Everyman's Library edition of Herodotus, published by Knopf, adds that the word is connect connected with the Semitic word kebir, which means great. Dardanus was later credited, or, or I would say he was blamed, for bringing the worship of the Kabiri from Samos to Troy, where they were worshipped, that they were worshipped and they were identified with the Idahian Dactyli of Crete. So, so we see that these Kabiri, who were the gods of the Trojans in ancient times, they're mentioned very often. They're mentioned by Herodotus. They're mentioned by Strabo. They were idols that happened to have a Hebrew name. Imagine that, the Trojans worshipping idols that had a Hebrew name. And, and this is an established fact of history. 
In his history of the Peloponnesian War, the greatest any in general, Thucydides, writing of the earliest times, states that by the Carians and the Phoenicians were the greatest part of the islands inhabited, meaning the Greek islands. Herodotus says that the Carians were originally called Leleges and dwelt in the islands, from which they were later driven by Ionians and Dorians to settle on the mainland. Although varying accounts are also supplied by the historian, in Book 1, paragraph 171, Herodotus also states that the Carians are related to the Lydians. Now, we see the Lydians are the Shemitic Lud, mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, verse 22, and in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 19. While Strabo says that that the Lycians or Dardans, Herodotus says that they too came from Crete, a colony led by Sarpedon, the brother of Minos, but claims that they were named after an Athenian. Yet Strabo gives a differing, differing account of Sarpedon, and I'll get to that very shortly. While Strabo connects the Calicians to both the Trojans and to Syria, and also to cities in Pamphylia, which he calls Trojan Colicians. Herodotus says of the Colicians that they bore anciently the name of Hupakahians. That's the word Akahian with a prefix, which means sub or below but took their present title from Kelix, the son of Agnor, a Phoenician. Rawlinson adds a footnote here where he says, in his translation of Herodotus, that the Colicians were undoubtedly a kindred race to the Phoenicians. It must be noted that Homer called the Danans, in all of his writing, he called the Danans Akahians. And here we see that the original name of the Colicians was called Hoop Akahians in early times. Cadmus, the Phoenician, legendary founder of the city of Thebes in Greece, was also called the son of Agenor, and was said to be the brother-in-law of Darda, of Dardanus, the Trojan. Cadmus, the Phoenician, in the Greek legends, was said to have married the city of Dardanus, the Trojan. Theodore Siculus, Book 5. Strabo states that the Lelegas and the Colicians were closely related to the Trojans in his 13th book of his geography, and that the Colicians were settled in the Troad even before they colonized Colicia, and that Homer puts Colicians in the Troad along with the Dardans. Of the Pamphylians we have, who we have seen are related to the Trojans, Strabo states that but the Pamphylians, who share much of the traits of the Colicians' stock of people, do not wholly abstain from the business of piracy, for which the Phoenicians in earlier times were most famous. The Carians dwelt in and around Miletus in southwest Anatolia, southwest modern Turkey. I hate to call it Turkey. 
Having taken Sarpedon from the Cretan Milicis as their founder, they settled the Termolae in the country, which is now called Lycia, and they say that these settlers were brought to Crete by Sarpedon, a brother of Minos. So when we see Lycians in the Bible, and they are in there a couple of times, we know where they came from. Herodotus called the Greek Thales of Miletus. Thales of Miletus was considered one of the first great Greek philosophers. Herodotus called him a man of Phoenician descent. Strabo debates the identification of the Lelegas with the Carians, but he explains that they inhabited the same territory together, and also that the Lelegas also inhabited a part of the Troad from which they were driven after Troy's fall. Carians, including Menemilitus and Lycians, are all mentioned by Homer among Troy's defenders. The Minoans themselves were said to have spread west and colonized at least as far as Sicily. That's in Diodorus Siculus, Book 4, and Strabo, Book 6, Strabo's Geography, Book 6. And the Cretans founded Bahiatis in Macedon and Brentesium in Italy, among other places. So we see that the earliest Greek accounts of Greek origins has the Greeks spreading from the southeast of the Mediterranean to the north and the west of the Mediterranean. And these are consistent throughout all the Greek writings. Strabo says that in earlier times, Nassos was called Keratus, bearing the same name as the river which flows past it. Well, let me say that that word care or car, C-A-E-R, I'll pronounce that care, right? Or car is from a Hebrew word which means city. The word Carthage is a, well, really it's, it's a, an anglicized form of the Roman name for a city whose name was Kar Hadesh, and that means in Hebrew, new city. Another river on Crete is a famous river mentioned by all the Greeks. It's named the Yardanus, and it's spelled almost exactly the same as the name of the river in Palestine which is Yordanus, I-O-R-D-A-N-O-S, instead of I-A-R-D-A-N-O-S. So in the earliest accounts, we find, while those accounts contain, contain some variations, that the Trojans, the Lelegas, the Carians, the Colicians, and the Phoenicians are all related. And also all have some connection to ancient Crete, a land which was famous for its bull worship cult, just as we see in Exodus chapter 32, 1 Kings chapter 12, 2 Kings chapter 10, and as we've seen in Apollodorus' library. Much later, during the Trojan Wars, Homer places the Dorians on Crete. They are mentioned specifically in Odyssey book 19. Homer, you know, Strabo had all the respect in the world for Homer, Homer probably wrote about 600 B.C. And he was writing of events 
perhaps 600 years before his own time. And Homer is called ex arches by Strabo. Homer is called from the beginning by Strabo. Strabo esteemed Homer to be the earliest of the Greek writers. Now, there were some... Um, some lyric poets who wrote at or perhaps just before the time of Homer, but they didn't really write the historical epic poetry that Homer did. And Homer was esteemed by all of the later Greek writers for his description of the world that the Greeks perceived 600 years before they started writing. And it's very consistent. Homer's poems... What were, of course, where they come with gods and myths, we have to dismiss that stuff. But when he's talking about people, we have to pay attention because he, he, he is um, found to be very accurate. He's made a few mistakes, but generally he's found to be very accurate. His, um, he, he imagined the Cimmerians had come from the north, and, and that's his his real big that that's really the only big mistake I find in Homer. And and the um he he couldn't have had the information that we have from Assyrian inscriptions now that the Cimmerians came from Mesopotamia. And and we can correct Homer now. Homer would be correct if if um if if, he, if the Cimmerians indeed traveled around the Black Sea. I've read archaeological um, papers that indicate that the Cimmerians left Mesopotamia and crossed Anatolia and destroyed Phrygia and then crossed into Europe. That, that's what the archaeologists, that, that's the preponderance of the archaeological material. So we see that the Trojans, Lelegas, Carians, and Colicians, and Phoenicians are all related and they all had a common origin, and, and they were all connected to ancient Crete. They were also connected, to some degree, to ancient Cyprus, which was once the subject of the, which was once an island which was subject to the Phoenicians of Tyre. And, and Josephus, Antiquities, Book 9, and Ezekiel 27.6 both support that. Cyprus and Crete, I would say, were mere stopping points or staging areas where in early times the tribes of Palestine settled before they moved on into Anatolia and Greece and points further west. Once it is realized that the ancient Phoenicians were indeed the northern tribes of Israel, which the Bible and especially the Septuagint version fully reveals, and I presented that paper on Talkshoe um, a couple of years ago, and I may present it again yet. And that the Trojans, related to the Phoenicians, as we, have, as we have just seen explained in the Greek records, had descended from Judah through Zarah. With that understanding, that these Carians and Lelegas and, and, and Phoenicians, who all settled in Anatolia and the Greek islands and, and even parts of mainland Greece, that they were ruled over by Trojans, and we're going to see that in the next paragraph, I believe. The Bible and the prophecy 
and the promises and the history, all they all come to life. They all begin, the, the realities of biblical prophecy all begin to materialize. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his seat until Shiloh comes. That's Genesis 49.10. This statement was made perhaps 700 to 750 years before David, the first Judahite king in Israel, received the scepter there for the line of Pharez. Pharez, the son of Judah. Strabo says of the Trojans that they waxed so strong from a small beginning that they became kings of kings. Strabo describes the Trojan royal dynasty which ruled over all the related peoples. He describes them ruling over the Carians, the Lycians, the, the Mysians, the Lelegas, and the Calicians, all descendants of the Phoenicians. Even in the defeat of Troy, after Troy was destroyed, the Trojans were still considered a noble race, and Trojan princes were considered true royalty. So it is evident that the Zara line of Judah, had kings much earlier than the Pharez line, ruling over the dispersed of the children of Israel, and that those kings ruled over many of the Phoenicians who spread themselves around the Mediterranean coasts. Virgil's Ahenid tells a story of how the Trojan prince Ahenius, after Troy's fall, led a large colony of Trojans to what is now Italy. founding a settlement called Alba Longa. These people later became known by the name of that settlement's most famous city, Rome. While Virgil's poem contains an anachronistic subplot, a romance between Ahenius and Dido of Carthage, who actually lived over 300 years after Troy's fall, and, and we can see that in, in the ancient chronicles of Tyre, which are quoted in Josephus' Against Appion, and, and how I would love to have those chronicles of Tyre now. Virgil ended his artificial romance, his contrived romance, in enmity, and he probably contrived it for political reasons, justifying the Punic Wars. But the general story of Ahenius' migration was well accepted in antiquity. All of the Greek historians mentioned the migration of the Trojan Ahenius and the settlement, a, a colony of Trojans, into Italy to found the land that eventually produced Rome. According to Homer, the Lydians were allies of Troy. We see that the Lydians were, were Semitic people. They were Semites, just like the Hebrews. Homer mentions them in Book 2 of the Iliad as Trojan allies. 
And the Etruscans of Italy claimed to be a colony of Lydians. And Strabo wrote that, and Herodotus wrote it, and Tacitus wrote it in the Annals of Rome. So if we understand the, um, the, the alliance which the Lydians had with the Trojans, and we understand that the Lydians already possibly had a settlement of Etruscans in Italy, that then the settlement of Trojans which followed is all the more plausible. Alba Longa, that colony said to be founded by Aeneas, was immediately below the region known as Tuscany in Italy. And Tuscany is the ancient land of the Etruscans, who, by all accounts, came from Lydia. Strabo tells us that the migration of Aeneas is, quote-unquote, a traditional fact, along with the diaspora of other Trojans, which he talks about in Book 3 of his geography, and he also discusses at length several places where the Trojans settled in book six of his geography and, and in other places. He also relates the descent of Julius Caesar, which was claimed to be from Aeneas, the Trojan prince. And Virgil also mentioned that. It was mentioned how Alexander the Great also claimed to be a descent from Trojan princes. And Strabo goes on to infer that Alexander's claim is not as well supported as Julius Caesar's is. Now, Strabo was writing in Greek, and he really had no axe to grind against a, a fellow Greek, right? Although much of Diodorus Siculus's Book 7, the original, is lost, Chapter 5 was preserved in Eusebius's Chronicle as well as at least chapter 5, as it's numbered by Harvard's Loeb Library. In that chapter, where Eusebius quotes, he repeated Diodorus' account of the Trojan migration and the settlement in Italy under Aeneas and the descent of the family of Julius Caesar from that Trojan prince. Eusebius certainly accepted the account by Diodorus, who says he gathered in summary from all libraries into one and the same clearinghouse of knowledge. That's how Theodorus Siculus was described even in ancient times. The Romans legitimized their rule over the Oikumene, over the, over the known world, by their claim of being descended from the noble Trojans. And those claims were even recognized in the Middle Ages. In medieval times, the Trojan princes were considered to be legitimate, rightful rulers, and noblemen sought to connect themselves to the houses of those princes in order to legitimize their own positions. So, for instance, in the reign of the Merovingian kings, Frankish pride in their own achievement bore fruit in Dagobert's reign in the emergence of the tradition that the Franks were descended from the Trojan royal family and thus were equal to the Romans. I'm quoting the Oxford History of Medieval Europe. Yet while Roman claims had the full support of history, the Frankish claims did not. Did not. They certainly did not. They were really stretching it there.
More credible are the claims concerning the kings of the Bretons. And Virgil relates that they too were a colony from the Trojans of Italy. This is an old tradition. Though the Greek historians do not state that. But the Greek historians do not really know the Bretons like the Romans did. Theodore Siculus does tell us of the British that they used chariots, even as tradition tells us the old Greek heroes did in the Trojan War. The Bretons evidently had a lot of accoutrements and a lot of traditions that they did bring from their eastern origins, because they were originally, by all ancient accounts, descended from Phoenicians and from Trojans, as well as from the later Chimerians who crossed over after 400 A.D. In, into Britain, the Kimri. Strabo agrees that for the purposes of war, they use chariots for the most part, just as some of the Kelpi do. This was learned when Caesar invaded Britain, and that's the event which both Diodorus and Strabo are referring to. Many ignorant skeptics claim that Troy did not exist at all, pointing to the want of remains found at Hisarlik, which is believed to be the likely ancient site of ancient Troy, Hisarlik, in, in modern-day Turkey, northwestern Turkey. It, it was discovered by um, Heinrich Schliemann in the 1800s, who wasn't even really an archaeologist. Yet scholars, too, the, the skeptics that claim that Troy did not exist because not enough archaeological evidence was found of its existence, they ignore the classical writers. Euripides was a 5th century B.C. tragic poet. He wrote around 480, 450 B.C. in there. And Euripides' play, Helen, which portrays events in the aftermath of the Trojan War, the following dialogue takes place between the title character and the Greek hero, Tuker. Tuker says, Helen, I'm sorry, Helen says, did you really go to the renowned city of Ilium, stranger? And Tuker says, yes. I helped sack it, but came to grief myself. Helen says, what, has it already been destroyed by fire? And Tuker says, yes, you cannot even see for sure the footprint of its walls. That's in Euripides' play, Helen, lines 105 through 108. The grief which Tuker refers to is the loss of his brother Ajax in the Trojan War. Strabo calls the Troad, quote-unquote, left in ruins and in desolation, even in his own time. And Strabo says of Troy that no trace of the ancient city survives, and naturally so, for while the cities all around it were sacked but not completely destroyed, yet that city, meaning Troy, was so utterly demolished that all the stones were taken from it to rebuild the others. That's in Strabo's Geography, Book 13. Strabo later quotes Lycurgus of Athens, a 4th century B.C. orator, who said of Troy that it was razed to the ground by the Greeks and is uninhabited. 
Now, why do modern scholars complain that so little has been found at Troy when we have a clear indication by the classical writers that there should be nothing left to find? The destruction of Troy was so real to the Greeks that writers such as Thucydides and Diodorus Siculus dated the events of their histories in terms of the number of years from the fall of Troy. And that would therefore evidently be around 1184 B.C. on our calendars. The story of the noble Trojans may surely be continued from the records of the Romans, showing their connection to the Britons and the settlement of the Malaysians in Ireland, along with the closer examination of the Trojan diaspora in the Greek records. However, it is not intended to do so here. It is only hope that one realizes that from the earliest dispersions of the children of Israel, that the scepter certainly did not depart from Judah. And that while the coasts of Europe were first settled by, by Japhethites, by the Ionians and the Rhodians and the Thracians and others, the children of Israel surely did inherit the Oikumene as the Bible promised. And this is only a small part of the ongoing story. The much later Greek historian Procopius, for instance, he tells us that the Byzantine Roman emperor Justinian came from a Dardanian tribe in Illyria. Therefore, he was also of the same bloodline. The verity of these ancient historical accounts may be ascertained with an inspection of both Old Testament prophecy and New Testament testimony. Daniel 9.25 dates the coming of Messiah the Prince for us, which is Yahshua Christ. At Daniel 9.26, Daniel tells us that after the crucifixion, the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city. The message of the translators in both the King James and the Greek of the Septuagint showed it from the earliest times men insisted that the prince of verse 25 and the prince of verse 26 were two different persons. I would assert that that's ridiculous. The Hebrew word is the same, the subject does not change, and there is no grammatical compulsion for assuming that these are two different princes. The Messiah, the prince of verse 25, is the same prince, Jesus Christ, to whom the people of verse 26 belonged. The Romans were of the same tribe of Judah. The Romans were of the... The Romans were the kinsmen, we avengers of the Christ. It is evident that the translators themselves could not conceive of how the Christ could have some other people from outside who would destroy Jerusalem, the supposedly holy city, which they imagined to be inhabited by his people, and it wasn't. In reality, as it is surely attested to us in history and in the Bible, the true Israelite people of Yahweh was spread across the Oikumene, the inhabited world, long before the time of Christ, and most of the inhabitants of Jerusalem left behind were of the Canaanite-Edomite adversary, today's Jews. The Romans, being descended from the Israelite tribe of Judah, 
Surely were the people of the prince of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 26. Paul, addressing the Romans, in Romans, in his epistle to the Romans, chapter 16, verse 20, Paul says that the Romans would crush Satan, meaning the adversary, the Romans would crush Satan under their feet. In other words, the Romans would destroy the Canaanite. Edomites of Jerusalem, and they certainly did. Paul knew that the Romans were Israel. Paul told them as much throughout his epistle, and we're going to discuss a few of those things now. This is especially apparent in Romans 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, which could only be spoken of Israelites. And Romans chapter 2, and Romans chapter 4, and Romans chapter 7, and Romans chapter 11. And I'm going to discuss some of those chapters now. I will start by quoting Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Paul is addressing Romans. He is not addressing Judeans and practitioners of Judaism in Rome. And the proof is in the epistle. Paul says, So the wrath of Yahweh is revealed from heaven upon all profane and unjust men who withhold the truth with injustice. Because that which is to be known of Yahweh is visible among them, since Yahweh has made it known to them. Namely, the unseen things of his from the creation of the order are clearly observed, being understood in the things made both of his eternal power and divinity. For this they are inexcusable. Because knowing Yahweh, knowing God, they thought of him not as God, nor were they thankful, but they became foolish in their reasonings and were darkened, their hearts void of understanding. Alleging to be wise, they became fools. And they changed. Now, we don't see Jews doing this in Rome. We see Romans doing this in Rome. They changed the estimation of the incorruptible Yahweh into a resemblance of an image of corruptible man and birds and four-legged animals and reptiles. On which account Yahweh handed them over to uncleanness and the passions of their hearts, their bodies to be dishonored among themselves. Everyone who exchanges the truth of God with falsehoods and reverences and serves the creation rather than the creator, who is praised for the ages, truly. Let me say that in Rome, and all of the Roman records reflect this, and all of the archaeology reflects this. In Rome, the original word, the original name of their god was Jove. And Jove is spelled I-O-U-E. Josephus, writing in Greek, says that the name of God can be spelled with four vowels. In Greek, not in Hebrew, he means in Greek, because he was writing in Greek. And that could only mean that it was spelled I-O-U. And then the last vowel is arguable. It could be an eta. It could be an epsilon. It could be an alpha. Yahweh. In any case, it's the exact equivalent of the Roman high god Jove in the Latin spelling. It's the exact equivalent. There's no doubt. Today's academics, they refute that. They that they that they contrive all sorts of arguments against it because they can't imagine 
that there were any worshippers of Yahweh outside of their precious Jews. Today's academics strive to maintain that false identity which the Jews have have made for themselves. Paul told the Romans that they had the truth of God. Yahweh says that he only knew the children of Israel. He says that throughout the Old Testament. He only knew the children of Israel. Amos 3.2 and many other scriptures. Romans chapter 2 verse 14. For the nations which do not have the law. Paul's not saying Gentiles. He's saying ethnoi here. For the nations, and we're going to see very soon which nations Paul means when we get to Romans chapter 4. For the nations which do not have the law, by nature practice the things of the law. These not having law themselves are a law, who exhibit the work of the law written in their hearts, bearing witness with their conscience, and between one another considering accusations or then defending the accused. The work of the law written in their hearts. Yahweh said in Jeremiah chapter 31 of the children of Israel that he would make with them a new covenant and write his law in their hearts. Paul is referencing that very thing. Paul knows that he is talking to a portion of the dispersed children of Israel where he addresses the Romans. He's not talking to aliens. He's talking in the fulfillment of scripture and the prophecy made long before time. And that's consistent throughout the epistle to Romans and throughout all of Paul's epistles. And we will see that 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 perspective fortified shortly. Romans chapter 2, verse 22 to 29. Declaring not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Loathing idols, do you commit sacrilege? You who boast in the law, through transgression of the law, do you dishonor Yahweh? Indeed, the name of Yahweh through you is blasphemed among the nations, just as it is written. For circumcision indeed profits if you would practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcised should keep the judgments of the law, would his uncircumcision not be counted for circumcision? Then the uncircumcised from nature, in other words, those who are uncircumcised in the skin, who is fulfilling the law shall judge you who through writing and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. Paul is talking about the the disaffected and, and disobedient Judeans, and he's talking rhetorically. One by appearance is not a Judean, and not by appearance in the flesh is circumcision. Well, Paul's not talking about racial appearance. This isn't a license to bring people of other races into the covenant. Paul is only talking about the difference between uncircumcised Israelites and circumcised Israelites. It could be argued that Paul knew that the Romans were of the tribe of Judah, and that he was talking about uncircumcised Judah, and circumcised Judah. And he is saying, one in concealment, not, but in concealment is one a Judean, and circumcision is of the heart, in spirit, not in writing, of which approval is not from men, but from Yahweh. And there are several times in the Old Testament scripture where Yahweh begged the children of Israel to circumcise their hearts, and where he said that he would circumcise their hearts. And this, again, is another reference to 
the oracles of the prophets. Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourselves to Yahweh and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my fury come like a fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read all of Romans chapter 4. Because Romans chapter 4, in Romans chapter 4, Paul tells us who those nations are that he addresses throughout his epistles. He also defines what the faith of Abraham is. By Paul identifying the nations, he asserts that he knew where those nations that were promised Abraham that would be sprung from his loins, Paul knew where they were. That's the whole gist of all of Paul's epistles. Romans chapter 4. Now, what may we say that our forefather, I understand that the King James Version has father, but the Greek has forefather. Now, what may we say that our forefather, Abraham, is found concerning the flesh? For if Abraham from the rituals has been deemed worthy, he has reason to boast, but not towards God. Indeed, what did the writing say? That Abraham trusted Yahweh, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to he who performs rituals, his reward is not considered in accordance with favor, but in accordance with debt. But to he not performing, but who rather is trusting on he who must judge the impious, his faith is count, accounted for righteousness, just as David also declares the blessing of the man to whom Yahweh accounts righteousness apart from rituals or works. Blessed are they who are released from lawlessness, whose errors are covered. Blessed is the man to whom Yahweh will not account sin. Is this blessing then on the, uncircum, on the circumcised or also on the uncircumcised? Indeed, we say that faith was accounted to him for righteousness. How then was it accounted? Being in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received a sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith he had in uncircumcision, in regard to his being the father of all those who are believing in a state of uncircumcision, and we will see that in a second. In regard to his being the father of all those who are believing, who are of the faith, in a state of uncircumcision, for them also to be accounted that righteousness. And father of circumcision to those not from circumcision only, but who those who walk in the footsteps of the faith our father Abraham had in uncircumcision. There's nobody here that can't already count Abraham as a father who can be possibly be included. Indeed, not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring that he is to be the heir of society, but through righteousness of faith. For if they from of the law are heirs, in other words, those who obey God, those of other races who obey God, Paul is discounting them here. They cannot be heirs. Those of other races who claim to follow the laws and follow the Bible and obey God cannot be heirs. That's what Paul's saying here. For if they from of the law are heirs, the faith has been voided and the promise annulled. For the law results in wrath, so there was, where there is no law, there is no, neither is there transgression. 
Therefore, from of the faith that in accordance with the favor, then the promise is certain to all of the offspring, not to that of the law only, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul's writing to Romans. He knows they are Israelites. Just as it is written that a father of many nations I have made you before Yahweh whom he trusted who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as existing. In other words, God didn't take just a bunch of nations and say, okay, Abraham, you're their father. If you go back and read the Genesis accounts, it was very important that Abraham's heir come from his loins. He tried to make Eleazar, his servant, the heir of his household, and God said, no, your heir will come from your loins. Therefore, Paul's saying that Yahweh calls things not existing as if they existed. Yahweh knows, God knows that he can fulfill his promises. He knows that when he says something, it will be made true. And it was. It was made true in Isaac and in the descendants of Isaac. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. These promises can't apply to anyone who is not a literal genetic descendant of Isaac and of Jacob after him. Just as it is written that a father of many nations, I have made you before Yahweh, whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as, they ex as if they existed. Who, contrary to expectation and expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations, according to the declaration, thus your offspring, your sperma, will be. So we see that Paul is asserting that the faith of Abraham was Abraham's belief that when Yahweh told him that his offspring, his seed, his sperma would become many nations, Abraham believed him. And for that, Abraham was deemed righteous. Paul is telling the Romans here that Abraham is their forefather and that they are part of the seed. And we've seen in history where that is entirely plausible right out of the pages of the Greeks, of their poets and of their historians. And he not being weak in the faith, nor having considered his own body by this time being dead, being about a hundred years old, and the deadness of the womb of Sarah, But at the promise of Yahweh, he did not doubt in disbelief. Rather, he was strengthened in faith, giving honor to Yahweh, and having full satisfaction that what he promised, he is also capable of doing. God didn't lead some Negro by the ear, by the ear and say, okay, you're a child of Abraham. God didn't go get a bunch of sand niggers or a bunch of Chinamen and say, okay, you're children of Abraham. God told Abraham, your seed would be those nations. Your offspring would be those nations. Abraham believed it, and for that he was justified. For that reason, 
it was also accounted to him for righteousness. Moreover, it was not written regarding him only that it was accounted to him, but also regarding us to whom it is destined to be accounted, to those who believe in he who raised Yahshua, our prince, from death. In other words, Paul's saying that we are those seed, if we were destined to come from Abraham's loins, and we did. So that we also inherit those promises, and we do. Who was handed over for reason of our transgressions and was raised for reason of our acquittal. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. Indeed, when we were feeble, Christ at the appointed time died for the impious. Well, Christ died for the impious, the impious of the children of Israel, as it is clearly stated in the Law and the Prophets. Though scarcely for the benefit of the upright will one die, for the benefit of the noble perhaps one then dares to die. But Yahweh introduces his own love to us because we, yet being wrongdoers, Christ had died for our benefit. Still more then, being deemed worthy now by his blood, we will be preserved by him from wrath. Therefore, and Paul's talking to the Romans here, if we, being odious, were reconciled to Yahweh through the death of his son, reconciled, you can't reconcile something that wasn't there in the first place, still more being reconciled, we will be preserved in his life. And not only, but also boasting in Yahweh through our Prince Joshua Christ, by whom we have now received that reconciliation. Paul could only be talking to people that he believed were the children of Israel. Romans chapter 7. Are you ignorant, brethren? I speak to those who know the law. That the law lords over the man for as long a time as he should live. For a woman married to a living husband is bound by law, but if the husband should die, she is discharged from the law of the husband. So then, as the husband is living, she would be labeled an adulteress if she were found with another man. But if the husband should die, she is free from the law. She is not an adulteress being found with another man. Consequently, my brethren, you also are put to death in the law through the body of Christ. In other words, Christ died on our behalf. Christ died because we because our ancient ancestors were idolaters, because they forsook God, because they had a marriage covenant, a relationship with God, and they were bound to keep it. And by the laws of that covenant, because they forsook that God, they were worthy of death. That is the law that Paul's explaining here. The nation being the allegorical wife of the covenant, and Yahweh God being the husband of the covenant. That is the agreement that our ancestors made, and they made it for us, because in the ancient Hebrew Bible, a man could bind his children to an agreement. We don't think that's fair, being rebellious children, but we owe our existence to our ancestors. Therefore, we owe our obedience to their desires. That's something the Jews have taught us to revolt from. Consequently, my brethren, you are also put to death in the law through the body of Christ, through the body of Christ for you to be found with another. I need a drink. 
who from the dead was raised in order that we should bear fruit for Yahweh. Indeed, when we were in the flesh, the occurrences of sin, which were through the law, operated in our members for the bearing of fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, being put to death in that which we were held, so that we are bound in newness of spirit and not in oldness of letter. Paul is explaining that these things applied to the Romans. He's speaking to those among the Romans who know the law. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. They say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? No, you can't take your wife back that you've divorced who's been with another man, after she's been with another man, you cannot play her back, take her back. But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again unto me, saith Yahweh. Under the law, Yahweh could take Israel back because he died. He died in the flesh to fulfill the law. He fulfilled the letter of the law. Hosea chapter 2, verse 2. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her, therefore, put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Yahweh, God speaking to the nation of Israel. Hosea chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and battle out of the earth, and I will make them to lie down safely, and I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and mercies. I will betroth thee even unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. Those words were only spoken to the children of Israel. That is the relationship which Paul is presenting to the Romans in Romans chapter 7. It would make absolutely no sense at all in light of all the prophets and in light of Paul's own statements concerning the offspring of Abraham if he did not know that the Romans were indeed a dispersed portion, a portion of the dispersed children of Israel. Indeed, as many as are led by the Spirit of Yahweh, these are the sons of Yahweh. Therefore, you have not taken on a spirit of bondage anew to fear. This is Romans chapter 7. You have not taken on a spirit of bondage anew to fear, but you have taken on a spirit of the position of sons, in which we cry, Father, Father. That same spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of Yahweh, and if children, if children, then heirs, heirs indeed of Yahweh, and joint heirs of Christ. If indeed we suffer together, then we shall also be honored together. Throughout the entire Old Testament, even though Adam is called the Son of God, Yahweh only gave that position of sonship to the children of Israel, and therefore in Deuteronomy 14.1 he says, Ye are the children of Yahweh your God. Again, Paul is appealing to the Old Testament. Romans chapter 8, verses 30 to 33. Now what may we say that the nations not pursuing justice, and we see those nations are the nations which descended from Abraham's seed, because Yahweh made him a father of many nations. 
This can be established in history. And they are all the nations Paul went to. That's why there are no epistles of Paul to the Egyptians. There are no epistles of Paul to the Arabians. There are no epistles of Paul to the Hutus, to the Tutsis, to, to, the, um, to the Canaanites, to the Nubians. We don't have any of that. There's no epistles of Paul to the Indians. It don't, they don't exist, and they never would exist. That the nations not pursuing justice have happened upon justice, but that justice is from faith. Paul is contrasting the people in Judea to the people of the dispersion. And he says, but Israel pursuing a law of justice with justice did not attain, meaning the people of Judea. In Romans chapter 9, Paul explains how he only cares for his brethren according to the flesh who are in Israel. And he explains that not all those people in Israel are of Israel. And he explains the relationship between Jacob and Esau. And he explains that the Israelites, the true Israelites in Israel, are vessels of mercy, and the Edomites are vessels of destruction. So all these things have to be taken in context. Here Paul is comparing the Israelites of the dispersion, the nations which came from Abraham's seed, as he explains in Romans chapter 4, with the remnant in Israel in Palestine. But Israel, pursuing a law of justice with law, did not attain. Why? Because it was not from faith, but from rituals. In other words, they believed that they had to keep the temple rituals, and they did not accept the gospel of Christ. They clung, even the legitimate Israelites, and we see plenty of that in the New Testament and in the book of Acts, even the legitimate Israelites, a lot of them clung to the rituals and they, that they refused to change and, and followed the Pharisees and the Judean and the Edomites in, in um, rejecting Christ. But they have stumbled at the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I place in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and he who is trusting of him shall not be ashamed. Christ is the stumbling stone. All the Jews tripped on it. That's why they never converted to Christianity. If they had converted to Christianity, then they would have lost their identity as Judeans. As we see in Romans chapter 9, that Paul contrasts Israelites in Israel and Edomites in Israel. We see that in sections of Romans chapter 10 also, and into Romans chapter 11, Paul is still making that same contrast, and I'll quote Romans 11.1. 1. Now I say, is Yahweh thrust away his people? Certainly not. Indeed, I also am an Israelite of the offspring of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Yahweh is not thrust away his people. In other words, Yahweh did not thrust away the people that were under the law that accepted Christ. Only those who didn't. Whom he knew beforehand. Do you not know in Elijah what the writings say? How he petitions Yahweh concerning Israel. Yahweh, they have killed your prophets and they have demolished your altars. And I alone was left remaining and they seek after my life. So what did the response to him say? I have left to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to bow. Now in this manner, even in the present time, 
there has been a remnant. In other words, there was always a remnant in the law. In, a, in, a, in accordance with the election of favor, but if in favor, no longer from rituals, since favor would no longer be favor. Paul is addressing the, the Judaizers and explaining to the Romans that the rituals were no longer necessary with Christ. And he goes on to ask, what then? What Israel seeks after, this it did not attain to, but the chosen have succeeded, and the rest were hardened, because the rest are basically the tares, or those Israelites who were disobedient that followed the tares. Yahweh has given to them a spirit of slumber, eyes that see not, and ears that hear not, under this very day. And David says their dining table will be for a snare, and for a hunting of beasts, and for a trap, and for a repayment to them. Their eyes will be darkened not to see, and their backs continually bow, because they rejected Christ. Now I say, did they stumble in order that they would fall? Certainly not, but in their fall is preservation to the nations for the provocation of them to jealousy. In the fall of the people of Judea, in their rejection of Christ, is preservation to the, to, to the nations, to the dispersed of Israel. If the good people in Judea, the Israelites in Judea, had all believed Christ and followed him and rejected the Jews, the Jews wouldn't have been able to carry through with the crucifixion. There would have been a civil war instead, and the Romans would have been involved. So in their fall, because it's necessary for Christ to die, and he dies at the hands of the Edomites through wicked hands, as Peter explains it in Acts, we all have our redemption. But if their fall is the wealth of the society and their wealth, they defeat the wealth of the nations, how much more their fullness? It would be better if all of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, they're the people he said in Romans 9 that he cared about. He's not talking about the Edomites. He's only talking about his kinsmen, according to the flesh. It would be better if they had all repented. Indeed, I speak to you, the nations, because I am an ambassador to the nations. I honor my office. If possibly... I would provoke the jealousy of my kinsmen, his fellow Benjaminites in Israel, his fellow Israelites in Judea, and preserve some from among them. Indeed, if the disposal of them is the reconciliation of the society, what would, be the, what would the acceptance be if not life from among the dead? Now, if the first fruit is sacred, then also the balance, and if the root is sacred, also the branches. But if some, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, being of a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, having become a partaker of the richness of the root of the olive tree, you must not exult over the branches. But if you exult, you will not sustain the root or the root you. We have to understand Roman history to understand this passage. The Romans' ancestors were the Trojans. The Trojans departed before from the main body of Israel before Mount Sinai. The Trojans departed from the main body of Israel, the people that became the Trojans, before the law was given to the Israelites. When Paul talked to the Corinthians... The Corinthians are Dorian Greeks. 
Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, all of our fathers were baptized in the cloud and in the sea with Moses. That's what he told the Corinthians. That is true of the Corinthians. It's not true of the Romans. The Corinthians being Dorian Greeks, their ancestors came to Greece from Dor in Palestine about 1100 B.C. Their ancestors were with Moses in the Exodus. Their ancestors were with Joshua in the conquest of Palestine. They dwelt in Palestine with the law until about 1100 B.C., when a whole bunch of them decided to pick up and move. And they migrated by sea to Crete and then to the Peloponnesus and established their cities in the land that they took from the Danans. But they had that history of the law and the relationship with God, the marriage relationship with Yahweh that all of Israel had. That's why Paul doesn't talk to the Corinthians about having to be grafted in. That's why he doesn't make the analogy, the allegory that they were wild olives. Because their ancestors did have the law and had the cultivation of, of the ancient kingdom and had the opportunity to keep, I mean, they still blew it. They still went off into idolatry, but they had the opportunity to keep the law and the prophets. The Romans, while Paul says that they were Israel and they had the law written in their hearts, they were wild olives because their ancestors didn't go through that history. Their ancestors weren't at Mount Sinai. Their ancestors did not receive the law. Their ancestors left from Egypt, or possibly even earlier than that, from the coast of Phoenicia, before Jacob went down to Egypt. And it's probably likely that they came from both places. But their ancestors are not found at Mount Sinai. Darda and the son, Calcol and the sons of Mahal, they're not at Mount Sinai. They're not mentioned there. They left from Egypt and they arrived in the Troad and they went from the Troad after the destruction of Troy to Rome. They didn't have the history which the other Israelite tribes did. They were wild olives and Paul's telling them that and that they're being grafted back into the original tree that they came from. They're being grafted into the cultivated olive tree. Paul uses this analogy of none of the Greek tribes, nor of the Galatians, because the Greek tribes and the, the, the Dardans, the, I'm sorry, the Dorians, and, and the Galatians, who were actually descendants of the Chimerians, they all were at Mount Sinai and existed in the law and the kingdom for, for some period of time and had those things in their ancient traditions. The Romans did not. They were wild olives that had to be grafted in to the cultivated olive tree. That's the analogy Paul is making. And that's why he doesn't make it in any of his other epistles. And it's only an allegory. But if some of the branches have been broken off, and you being of a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, having become a partaker of the richness of the root of the olive tree, the fruitfulness in following and being obedient to God and his law, 
You must not exult over the branches, but if you exult, you will not sustain the root, nor to root you, or to root you. Now you will say those branches have been broken off in order that I would be grafted in. Paul's making an allegory because the people, his kinsmen, his Israelite brethren in Judea rejected Christ. And they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be destroyed in the wars against the Romans unless they repent and lose their identity as Judeans and become Christians. And the Christians of Judea, they had the warnings of Christ concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, and they got out before it was destroyed. 1.1 million people were destroyed in the five years of the war with Rome as Paul, as Josephus recounts. So any Judeans who didn't heed the warnings of Christ concerning Jerusalem, and to do so they would have had to heard and accept the gospel, that they were probably destroyed. There were probably some good, well, many good people destroyed. They weren't all Edomites that were destroyed in 1.1 million people. A lot of them were probably good, but disobedient people of Israel, just like we have a lot of our white brethren. Who would rather obey the Jews today than the word of God? It's the same thing all over again. Indeed, if Yahweh spared not the natural branches, perhaps you may not be spared. Behold, then, the goodness and severity of Yahweh, certainly upon all those who have fallen severity, but the goodness of Yahweh upon you, if then you abide in that goodness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. Moreover, they also, if they do not remain in disbelief, shall be grafted in. So Paul's not talking about a racial tree. He's talking about an allegorical tree and a society of Christians in obedience to God because the broken off branches, the natural branches, may also be grafted in. They're all olives. That's the important thing. There aren't any grafting in of figs. Men don't gra gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles. There are no grafting in of, of cypress trees here or, or palm trees. That's not possible. They're all olives. They're all Israelites. And I hope that that was made clear tonight, both from Paul's epistles to the Romans and from the ancient Greek writings and, and the origins of, of many of the Greeks themselves. And we could... But well, I, I will cover the um, the other paper I wrote on this topic in, in a few weeks, classical records and, and the origins of the Danon and Dorian Greeks, which also discusses much of the archaeological evidence and historical evidence. And we'll see that the other Greek tribes also came from the children of Israel, except the Athenians, the Ionians. The Ionians are Japhethites. Thank you for listening tonight. And praise Yahweh. Good night.